0: Hello, listeners. Glad to meet with you again. We will now begin Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries' Unity in Christ program. For first-time listeners, my name is Christine Kim and I'm the host of this program. I hope our listeners have set a good example for others around you, and awaken through prayer. Tomorrow, June 21st, is Father's Day. I hope that this day can be cherished in honor of thanking all the fathers out there for caring and loving us. I also hope we can give thanks to our Heavenly Father for calling us His children. When I think of a Father's love, I always think of Luke chapter 15, and the prodigal son relationship to his father. Even before his father passed away, the younger son asked for his share of his father's estate. Upon his younger son's request, the father divided his property between his two sons, and his younger son gathered all that he had and set off to a distant country and squandered his wealth. He eventually had to raise and keep pigs to survive which is known as one of the most shameful jobs as pigs were considered the dirtiest of animals in the Jewish culture. The son, in his despair, remembers that even the servants of his father ate better than how he was surviving and he returns to his father's house. His father takes his son back and restores all of his authority. Today, I want to reflect upon the parable of the lost son and think about it in relation to ourselves and God's love. We'll come back to share more after our first song.
1: and I realize just how beautiful you are And how great your affections are for me and oh, how He loves us Oh, oh, how He loves us How He loves us Loves like a herd. us, oh, oh, how he loves us, how he loves us, oh.
0: Parable of the lost son is introduced only in the book of luke in chapter 15 verses 11 through 32 it is good to know the background behind this parable that jesus tells when reading the beginning of this chapter verses 1 through 10 it gives you information regarding the background if you read verse 1 and 2 it tells us that tax collectors and sinners gathered around to hear jesus and that the pharisees and teachers muttered about Jesus welcoming sinners to eat with them. Because Jesus knows the true heart of the people, he begins to explain the parable of the lost sheep and the parable of the lost coin, and lastly, the parable of the lost son. We commonly tend to think the main focus of this parable is based on the lost son, but really it is not. This parable begins in verse 11 like this. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. That's right, this parable is based on his two sons. Among his two sons, the younger son asks for his share of his father's estate, even though his father is still alive and traditionally, the estate is divided after the father dies. The father divided his property and gave it to his son, but it tells us in verse 12 that he not only gave it to his younger son, but divided the property between his two sons. According to Jewish custom, It is possible for a father to share his estate while he is still alive. But the rights of the estate is still in the father's house as long as he is living, and because of this, the older son did not touch his share of the estate. But the younger son, not long after, gathered all that he had and heads for a distant country, squandering his wealth, and eventually spends everything. The image of the younger son is the same as the image of man. God created us and gave us the right to reign over all creation, but after receiving the whole earth, we turned to sin, wasting it all. As the wages of sin is death, the younger son eventually lost all he had and had to raise and feed pigs and was even starving. It shows us in verse 17 that this is when he came to his senses. He thinks about his father's house and begins to regret his decisions. As his son comes back to his senses, He realizes what he has done and decides to go back to his father. The younger son has a true moment of repentance, just like the son is returning back to where he came from. Repentance is not just realizing what I did wrong, but realizing and also moving our thoughts into changing our actions. What would have happened to a son if we had only realized he had sinned against his father, but still stayed where he was? He would have eventually starved to death. I pray and hope that we may all repent the way his son did. It tells us in Luke chapter 15 verse 20 that the younger son repents and comes back to his father but while he was still a long ways away his father sees him and runs towards him throwing his arms around him and kisses him. The love that this father had for his son is so deep that he did not just happen to see him But was earnestly waiting for him every day, and that's why he saw his son from far away and ran towards him as his son was coming back to him. The joy that this father had as he ran to his son, regardless of the fact that in the Jewish culture, no matter how busy you are, you do not run, because it would be considered undistinguished. This unconditional love of a father cannot be simply overlooked. Even before his son had a chance to ask for forgiveness, the father opened his arms and kisses him, showing great mercy and forgiveness. Let's take a look from a different perspective at the father who runs and sees his son from afar. The father had great sympathy for his younger son. Sympathy, also referred to as splagnizomai, in the Greek term means to have great compassion. Why did the father run with such great compassion when he saw his son from afar to the point that he ran to him. Do you want to take a look at the passages of Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 18-21 through together? If someone has a stubborn and rebellious son who does not obey his father and mother, and will not listen to them when they discipline him, his father and mother shall take hold of him and bring him to the elders at the gate of his town. They shall say to the elders, The son of ours is stubborn and rebellious. He will not obey us. He is a glutton and a drunkard. Then all the men of this town are to stone him to death. You must purge the evil from among you. All Israel will hear of it and be afraid. According to what is written in Deuteronomy, a stubborn and rebellious son is to be stoned to death. Anyone who is disrespectful to their parents neglects their parents' authority or anyone who lives their life mindlessly, can be classified as this. If it were by law, this younger son who neglected his living father, gathering all of his property, wandering off to a far off country, wasting everything, should have been stoned to death. By the rules of the law under reprobation, we would have all died as well. But the father of this lost son runs toward his son as he sees him from afar and kisses him. If anyone would have seen the son and started throwing rocks at him, he might have died. When imaging this picture of his father hugging and kissing his son, to me it portrays the father throwing himself onto his son as if he were protecting him from stones.
2: Blessed Redeemer,
3: my morning star. All
2: oh, the heavens shout your name. All creation.
0: up next is a sermon by Pastor Mark Martin of Calvary Community Church in Phoenix, Arizona. Today's topic is Walking in the Light, Part 1, based on 1 John 1, verse 5-7. I hope you have a blessed time as you join Pastor Mark Martin.
4: Let's open our Bible to 1 John, way in the back of the Bible, almost to the very end. 1 John chapter 1, and we're gonna look at verse five in a moment. This is addressed to God's little children, that's us. And I like being all grown up, but I also like being a little child of God. It makes me feel cared for and makes me feel protected. The focus of 1 John is on fellowship and intimacy with God. The key verse, how about some review? You guys help me out. What's the key verse of 1 John? Yeah, take some notes. 1 John 5, 13, that's good. The key words were light, love, life, and what? No, and did I ask you, I meant to, how many, to count how many times, read the book, count how many times the word no know or knows or is used in the book, how many time? 42, huh, only got 40. I think I've seen 40 before, but if there's 42, that just emphasizes my point even more, <laughs> that this book is written that we might know something. And it's that we might know the Lord, that we might know that we're in fellowship with the Lord, and that we might know what attributes of somebody who is walking with the Lord looks like. The key command in the book is found in verse seven. But if we say we walk in the light, but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. The important key verse is to walk in the light. Verse 7 speaks about habitually walking in the light. Now, I'm going to read verses 1 through 7, and you just follow along. What was from the beginning, what we have heard and what we've seen with our eyes, what we beheld with our hands, handled concerning the word of life, And the life was manifested and we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, that you also may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with who? The Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write, here's purpose again, so that our joy may be made complete and this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you that god is light and in him there is no darkness at all if we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness we what we lie and do not practice the truth but if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus his son cleanses us from all sin. God is light, verse 5 says. The Greek indicates that this is not saying that God is some kind of an impersonal light force. God isn't some light bulb in space. The light spoken of here." Though it's the word phos, phos, which is used in uh, phos, which is used in Greek to indicate light above your heads, also has a moral sense. And when it's used without the definite article like it is here in the Greek, it's talking about moral, ethical light. And he's saying God is morally, ethically pure. He is light, and in them there is no moral darkness. It doesn't say God is a light. It doesn't say God is the light. It simply, beautifully, simply, profoundly says God is light. God is light in every way. We speak of the light of life. We speak of the light of love. We speak of the light of truth or the light of holiness. And in every way you think about it, God is light in those areas. Isn't he perfectly holy? the beauty of his holiness. Someone has said, light is the only visible expression of God. I think it's true. As he reveals himself in scripture, of course, with the exception of Jesus incarnate, God expresses himself as light. When you think about it, how did God reveal himself to Abraham? Remember in Genesis 15, God was that burning torch Passing through the pieces of the covenant sacrifices. Remember that? God passed through as this burning torch, light. How did God reveal himself to Moses? Burning bush. That's light again. How did God reveal himself to his, the people of Israel on Mount Sinai? Remember the mountain, Exodus chapter 19 says, burned with fire. It looked like this flaming mountain, like this volcanic mountain with fire and smoke and lightning. Remember when God, his presence filled the temple Solomon built? It was with a cloud of glory, light again. And when God revealed Jesus as his beloved son and actually said, this is my beloved son on the mountain Listen to him. Jesus was transfigured. And Matthew tells us in Matthew 17, verse 2, his face shone like the sun, and his garments became white as light. You've got God in light revealing who Jesus is, and his face is like the sun. It's bright light. Remember how Jesus is described in the book of Revelation, chapter 1, verses 12 through 15. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, John says, I saw seven gold lampstands and standing in the middle of the lampstands was the son of man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool and white as snow and his eyes were bright like flames of, can you guess? Fire. His feet were as bright as bronze refined in a furnace and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. Here is Jesus Christ revealed in glory, and he's burning. He's brilliant. We see the flames of fire. Paul tells Timothy, 1 Timothy six sixteen, that God alone possesses immortality and dwells in unapproachable light. Peter says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So, fellowshipping with God who is light means that I am going to be brought into the light, not just you know, the light bulb coming on, not just standing in a bright room, but I'm going to be brought into the moral rightness of God. You can't know the Lord and not be transformed morally, spiritually, ethically. You cannot know the Lord, John is saying, and not be walking in the light, not be walking in truth. You cannot have fellowship with God and be walking in darkness. Because God is light. Now, look at where we're going to spend eternity. Just hold your place in 1 John and go to the left to the book of Colossians and let's look at Colossians chapter one. Colossians chapter one, verses nine through 12. And I have to kind of start in verses way up above where I want to be because this is one of Paul's run-on sentences. Verses, and we'll read nine through 12. For this reason also, since the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you and to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. Read with me now. Joyously giving thanks to the Father... Who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Where are our brothers and sisters who've gone on before us? In light with the Lord. Why are they in light? Because that's what God is. Morally, he is light. When he reveals himself, we see, even in the physical realm, the reflection of his glorious light. And there's just glory everywhere. And that Physical light is actually a reflection of God's moral brightness, God's moral glory. Someone went to an observatory in Tucson and they said, that when they went into the observatory they were telling me that they were going to look at some of the sunspots on the sun, the great telescope there was going to take a photograph of the sun and that when it did, everyone in the room had to cover their eyes with their hands and double cover their hands and cover their eyes tightly and they said that when we did that and when the ray of sun hit the, the huge telescope, that the room was so filled with light that they could actually see with their eyes closed, their hands double crossed, they could see bones. It was so bright. That's why when people see the Lord, or people are in the presence of the Lord, they're on their faces. They're going, oh, woe is me. I am, I'm undone. I mean, oh. That's why we have to have new bodies. We couldn't stand in the presence of God. Our bodies would just vaporize. And God doesn't want that to happen. So he's promised us a new body that can stand that kind of glory. I love this verse because it says, I've been qualified for something. We don't qualify. I'm sorry, you apply for a job. You don't qualify, you're too old, you're too young, you're too smart, you're too dumb. Where do I qualify? You're just average. We need somebody above average, below average. God says, I've qualified you for something. I've qualified you to live with me forever in light with all the the rest of the gang, okay? We're gonna be with the saints in light. So ethically, morally, spiritually, God is light in him, there's no darkness at all. God is not darkness at all, contrary, to what some believers teach, God does not have a dark side. You've seen the yin-yang symbol, right? Have you wondered why is there the black and the white? What is that? It's the idea that there's a dark side to God and a light side to God. The apostle John... By revelation of the Holy Spirit and knowledge of what who he's known Jesus he's seen Jesus he's touched Jesus he's heard Jesus he knows God he's saying look I'm telling you God is light there's not a dark side to the force okay God is light and in Him there is what gang no darkness at all everything God does is right and just holy true. We can trust him 100%. God is always righteous. God is always light, okay? There's no dark side to God. And that is a comfort because, see, the pagan notion was that there was an evil side to the gods and you always had to kind of try to appease them and, and you never knew when they were going to turn cantankerous on you and even though you'd been good, they, they get mean. I mean, look at Greek mythology and Roman mythology. If you know anything about it, the gods, the gods were weird, Most nice people were better than the gods. And the scripture is giving this revelation that God isn't that way. God is better than any nice person you know. God never changes. He never is ambivalent toward you. He's always, if he's gonna love you, he always loves you. If he's right, he's always gonna be right. He'll never change. He'll never say, well, you know, that was one time when God was wrong. Or that was one time when God wasn't good. God is light morally, ethically, always right. And so we just, we have to believe that, accept it by revelation of God and say, okay, I'm gonna either believe what some religions say or some theories say or I'm gonna believe what the Bible says. And this is what the Bible teaches very clearly. Now, going back to 1 John, let's pick up another verse or two maybe. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him, if we say that we're having a common life with God, koinonia with God, if we say we have fellowship with him and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. Okay, now this is one of the first This is one of the first tests of whether or not a person is really born again or not. And don't apply it. Go apply it to somebody else. Just apply it to yourself. Am I walking with the Lord? If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in the darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. Now, a lot of people, they get real uncomfortable here because maybe they're walking in the darkness. And they're wanting to say, well, I can have both. I can walk in the darkness. I can walk around. And the idea is habitually walking this way. This is my path. This is the way I like to live. And yet I like to say I'm a Christian. John says, you're a liar. You're a liar. Whoa. That's not politically correct, is it? In fact, if somebody came up to me and after the message and they said, well, I'm living an immoral lifestyle and I'm a Christian, and if I said, you are not, you're a liar, <gasps> oh, can you imagine? But the Bible says you're lying. Something isn't adding up here. Something isn't true. Because you cannot be living in darkness, living in a way that is the opposite of God's way and say, oh yeah, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, I know the Lord. He's saying, no, you gotta walk differently. Look at what he says in verse seven. But if we walk in the light, and the idea is habitually walking in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ his son cleanses us from how much sin? All sin. Now this is not if we walk in the light, then Jesus will forgive us, and so I've gotta constantly be living in the light in order to have Jesus' forgiveness. This is teaching us that if you really have received Jesus' forgiveness and cleansing from your sin, you are going to walk differently. He's not saying your salvation is dependent on how you walk. He's saying your walk will be different because you have been saved. You can't live like you used to live. You're going to live differently because you're a believer and you love the Lord. Because you've been saved by grace, because Jesus has accepted you just as you are, you can't stay just the way you are. You change, and the habit of your life is not to walk in darkness anymore. Is he saying you're going to be perfect? Actually, no. Verse 8 says, if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. We're lying to ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So John is not teaching that any Christian is to become sinlessly perfect. He's not saying that any Christian in and of themselves, even with the power of Christ resonant in you, you're going to stop sinning completely. He's saying if, if you run into anybody like that, they're nuts. They're deceiving themselves. And the truth is not in them. But he is saying... And I've said this before. He's not saying you're going to be sinless, but he is going to, he's saying you're going to sin less and less because you love the Lord. And when you do sin, you're going to be quick to say, ah, I'm sorry. The neat thing is, is that, see, there's this immediate, the Holy Spirit goes, uh, and you're going, I know, I know. You know, almost beat the Holy Spirit sometimes. Don't say it, I know it, I'm sorry, you know. <laughs> But see how different that was from the way of life we had BC, right? Before Christ, we just steamroller people. Before Christ, we were mean, obnoxious, and not sorry. And the work of Jesus in our lives transforming us, oh, that is so sweet, so absolutely cool. I ran into a gentleman years ago in a church where I was pastoring, and we were at the first church we were ever at, and uh, this old guy, he believed that he was sinlessly perfect. I remember talking to him and I said, so you believe you're perfect? He said, yes. But his belief was that he had to become perfect in order to be accepted by God. Nobody, no matter how much they deceive themselves, will ever be sinlessly perfect. But that is no excuse for not desiring to live as sinlessly as we can.
3: Summer and winter, springtime and harvest, sun, moon and stars in their courses. Mercy and love. Great is thy faithfulness. Great is thy faithfulness. sings all mine with ten thousand Great.
0: Gospel Ministry is looking for volunteers in tech editing to ensure the quality of the broadcast and the addition of more encouraging and empowering programs. Volunteer hours are three hours a week, and anyone who's had experience with computer before can participate. And don't worry if you're not familiar with the sound editing program; Heart and Soul will provide basic training in editing. So if anyone is interested in helping out our ministry, please contact us at six zero two. 866 8999. Thank you. Please stay tuned as we are following a program that teaches the Lord's Prayer titled Pray in This Way.
5: Hello, listeners. This is Brian Winston with Pray in This Way. During the past two episodes, we looked deeper into the meaning of the verse, and do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We learned that asking God not to lead us into temptation is our pledge not to sin, and it is asking God to help us keep that pledge. Today I want to discuss the last part of the same verse. The last closing verse of the Lord's Prayer that we have memorized and recite reads as follows. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. However, when you actually look in the Bible in Matthew 6, this part is in parentheses. First, the reason why there is a parentheses here is because this part is both missing in some of the original manuscripts found in the ancient times and in the Gospel of Luke. Experts who study this verse came to the conclusion that the reason this last part of the verse was added was not really because Jesus taught it that way, but because the Jews always used a doxology at the end of every prayer, and the churches of that time added that part to make the Lord's Prayer more complete. Some people strongly disapprove of the act of adding and removing words in the Bible, especially by people. However, seeing that some original manuscripts have and some do not have the doxology of the Lord's Prayer, in reality these disapprovals are not too convincing. However, our focus is not to discuss the right and the wrong of these religious studies. Today's focus is about three things that are mentioned in the Lord's Prayer. The first is the kingdom, the second is the power, and the third is the glory. As we discussed at the beginning of the Lord's Prayer, in the verse that is written, Your kingdom come, the kingdom mentioned God's sovereignty and reign and ultimately His authority over us this kingdom is a kingdom where god's sovereignty is in action at the same time the kingdom represents god's people that is why the kingdom represents our proclamation of god's reign and of our acceptance that god's people will live under the reign forever declaring this is not something simple the confession that god's kingdom will reign forever proclaims that god is the only ruler of this world including me and that God is the only one who reigns. It means that although some things that happen in this world may seem odd, unfair, and unjust from our point of view, we believe that even these things are happening under our kind Father's reign and that our Father will take care of it. Because we declare and confess God's reign in every moment of our lives when we pray, Yours is the kingdom forever, we cannot complain, about each and every one of our situations and circumstances. Second is power. This Greek word for power is dynamis, which means ability. As some of you may already know, this is where we get the word dynamite. Here we are confessing that all ability and power is with our God. We are confessing that we believe that God hears all of our prayers and that the power and ability to answer our prayer is only with our God. Our God has the power to do anything that makes Him happy. There is nothing that God wants to do that He cannot do because He does not have the ability to do it. Believing in that power means we have confessed that God's kingdom reigns forever and we also believe in God's sovereignty. In Ephesians 3.20, God is described as Him who is able to do far more abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us. God is someone who has the power to give us more than we can think of and more than we ask for. The reason why we are in the situations we are right now is not because God does not have the ability to change it. God, under His perfect sovereignty, at the perfect time, according to His perfect plan, will bring reconciliation. All we need to do is believe. The third is glory. The Greek word for glory is doxa and means heaviness, which comes from the Hebrew word kabbad, God's reasonable weight. It defines heaviness, but at the same time, it means the most beautiful and bright. So God's glory defines the greatness, kindness, brightness and the beautifulness of God and that God can rightfully bear all of this weight on Himself. These things are forever with God. That is why at the end of the Lord's Prayer, we praise this glory. We are praising the glory that contains all of God's greatness, kindness, brightness, and beautifulness. In this way, we include this doxology in the Lord's Prayer. Our kind Father will listen to every prayer we lift up to Him And we will have the power to answer our prayers, and because we believe that God will reign forever, we can end our prayer in praise. As we end our prayers, we always say the word Amen. Amen can be literally translated from the Hebrew, meaning as that is right or that is what will happen without a doubt. However, a lot of times we tend to think that Amen is a word that we naturally add to the end of our prayers. We usually don't think much about when we add in Jesus' name, we pray, Amen, at the end of our prayers. However, we must not fail to realize that Amen is a powerful word with meaning and it is not a word that you just automatically add to the end of all prayers. When we say Amen, it is a confession of strong belief that our prayer will be answered by God. It is a confession of our faith. Jesus promised, that what we ask in faith, God will not fail to answer. In Matthew 21, verses 21 and 22, it is written, And Jesus answered and said to them, Truly I say to you, if you have faith and do not doubt, you will not only do what was done to the fig tree, but even if you say to this mountain, Be taken up and cast into the sea, it will happen. And all things you ask in prayer, believing you will receive when we make our prayers in faith god will make us fruitful without doubt the word amen also means agreement we are declaring a strong agreement with whatever we confessed in our prayers in many parts of the bible when god's name is proclaimed and his glory is exposed people responded with the word amen for example in nehemiah 8:6, it is written Then Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, while lifting up their hands, then they bowed low and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. We do not say Amen during sermons so that we can cheer on our pastors or to make our pastors feel better. Saying Amen is not a sign of ending our prayers either. Saying Amen is proclaiming that the words of our prayers are in no doubt true and that it will be accomplished through our God. Next time on Pray in This Way, we will look at the Lord's Prayer again in its entirety. I hope that everyone has the opportunity to experience our Father this week. Thank you again for listening, and God bless.
0: The father of the lost son does not scold his son when he returns. He did not punish him for all the things he did wrong. Instead, he hugs and kisses his son and provides the best clothes for him, puts a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. He restores all authority back to his son. He also prepares a fattened calf and holds a feast in his honor to celebrate his return. Here we can see a parallel in the love we receive from God our Father when we repent and return to Him. However, the older brother comes back from working in the field and hears a celebration in honor of his brother and refuses to go in. Instead of asking the older brother to come inside the house, the father goes outside to plead with him. This older brother is upset with his younger brother and does not call him his brother but instead says this, But when the son of yours who has squandered your property with prostitutes come home, you kill the fattened calf for him. And at this moment, the father replies back to his oldest son and says, My son, the father says, You are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we have to celebrate and be glad, because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus explains the parable to the Pharisees and the teachers. When reading this passage, I also see a lot of our image within the image of the older brother. We have all, at one point in our lives, been the younger brother, wandering off and squandering our heavenly Father's wealth, even until the point we face death. But Jesus Christ came and saved us and restored us, calling us His children. But there are so many times we forget about this grace and act like we are the older brother. There are times we complain to our Father about the new brothers and sisters in Christ that Jesus has called upon. That person cannot be saved because of the sin. This person should not be saved because they sinned in this way. We need to reflect upon ourselves and realize that we did not receive salvation because we were qualified and other people did not because they weren't. We should not think that others shouldn't be saved for any such reason, but to always be humble in our thoughts. There are people who compliment and try to give credit to the younger brother who repents of his wrongdoing, thinking that that is why the father accepts him back. There are many who think the importance of this parable is that the younger son not only repents, but realizes his wrongdoing and comes back to his father, the action of the son. But what do you think? Do you think that our actions and deeds have anything to do with us receiving salvation? The point of this parable is this, that the father already fulfilled all of his duties as a father even when the younger son left. He did not have to accept his son back, but instead, according to Jewish customs, he had the responsibility of taking his son to the elders of the town to have him stoned. However, he does not but through love and grace He accepts him back. In all honesty, we are not even as worthy as this younger son, because we did not even realize our sins and run back to our father, but instead, he sent his son for us, came to seek us, and restored us. The unconditional love for our father, who saved us while we were drowning in sin, who sent his one and only son for us, I want us to realize and try to grasp this love that our Father God has for us. I pray and hope that we realize grace is not received by our righteousness or good deeds. I pray that this week we may come forth through our Father's love, through tears of repentance, and pray in thanksgiving that God the Father saved us by giving His one and only begotten Son. We will now wrap up Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening as it has been my pleasure. I hope to see you this time next week, and God bless. I was lost, I was in chains,
2: the world had a hold of me. My heart was a stone, I was covered in shame when He came. presence I could